We're coming to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes this afternoon. We're in the final proper section of this book. And then from verse 9 is the conclusion. We'll be thinking about the conclusion next week. Um, the teach here um, rounds off this book in a very fitting way by giving us a broad sweeping overview of human existence. We might call this from the cradle to the grave. He gives us this panoramic wide angle view of life and he basically says, if you blink, you'll miss it. That's his kind of theme here. That word meaningless that crops up a few times, it sounds so depressing, doesn't it? That word meaningless is a Hebrew word that is... Sorry, I thought that was Rob blowing his nose and squealing at the same time. We'll have to cut that off the audio, won't we, when it goes to the website. I wondered what was going on there. That was really impressive. Um, the, The word meaningless is a Hebrew word that means squeak. No, it doesn't. It means... It means vapour, like a mist. We might say a puff of smoke. That's what life is like. If you blink, you'll miss it. It's like, it's gone. When we're young, we never think that we'll ever be old. And those of you who are older are thinking, how on earth did I get here this fast? But in keeping with the rest of this book, there is a surprise here again, because while this section that Rob read to us focuses on the shortness of life and death looming on the horizon, the real theme is actually one of urgent joy. The really striking thing here is that the teacher draws as he, as he draws to a close, he uses such commanding language. This has not been so much the case through the book, but here the action words are strong. Look with me, verse 8, enjoy. Verse 9, be happy. Later on in verse 9, follow. We get to verse 10, banish, cast off. And then we get into verse 12. And three times the teacher says, remember, these are all commands to do something. The tone here is not one of giving up, but getting on with life. There's There's a tension here. There's an urgent call here in this closing section to grab hold of life with both hands. To joyfully seize it while we still have our wits about us. I've had a bit of a wrestling match this week with this passage. Uh, it's, it's been hard to kind of structure this. So here's where we're going to try and go. If, if you've got one of the programs, there's some notes on the back there. We're, this is what we're going to try and do to get the juice out of this and give you a framework for, for benefiting from this, these thoughts. First of all, what I want to try and do is show you two broad major themes that are here intermingled in this chapter or, or the, this passage that Rob read. Two major themes. 
And then we'll have a little think about a sort of connecting link between them. And then we'll close by making three observations that I hope will encourage you as we take those observations away. So the two, two themes that intermingle. Theme number one, the main theme um, number one that I want to show you is, is this idea and mingling of enjoying and remembering. In chapter 11, from verse 7 to the end, the command there from the teacher is to enjoy life. And we touched on some of the action words that are there in that section. When we get into chapter 12, from verse 1 down to verse 7, the command there is to remember God. So the first part is enjoying life. The second part is remembering God. Now, there's a connection here in the mind of the teacher in that these two things depend on each other. In other words, if, what the teacher is saying to us, if we want to really enjoy life to the full, it's crucial that we do remember our Creator. I think the sense here is that we enjoy by remembering. That, that, that's the, the kind of sense here. The teacher is telling us, and let, let's be clear, that the fullest joy in life is found in a relationship with God. Remembering here in chapter 12, verse 1, this is a famous verse, remember your creator in the days of your youth. That word remember doesn't mean think about God every now and again. Remembering here means intimacy with God rather than distance or separation from him. Uh, one writer says this, to remember God is to live our whole lives for him. It is to be mindful of God in every circumstance, including him in all of our plans, praising him for all of his blessings and praying to him through all of our troubles. And of course, in the light of the rest of the Bible, when it says here, remember God, the Bible isn't here talking about all roads, all roads leading to the same generic God, nor is this talking about God being whoever we might want him to be. We're talking here, in the light of the whole Bible, about the living God who's revealed himself to us in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus. The teacher is therefore here urging us to chase life by chasing Christ. He's telling us that in following Christ, there is life and forgiveness and peace and joy and power and purpose. We haven't got time to do this, but I, I, I was going to go through briefly some of the I am's that Jesus said in the gospel, I am, and the things that Jesus lists. Um, Jesus is given to us by the Father. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, this is especially a word to the young. So who are the young? 
I, I, I don't think the teacher's just talking to teenagers here. Some of you are teenagers. If you can still breathe, I think he's talking to you. While, in other words, while you have ability, capacity, desires, the teacher is talking to you. Be enthusiastic now while you can in pursuing joy in life, in Christ. But I suppose this is a special word to those of you who are at the younger end of that spectrum of being able to breathe. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm not sure that that could be more relevant. There are so many young people growing up in our society and culture who are wondering what the point is. Recently I came across a young person on social media. It's not anyone that you know or that I know. I just came across this as a quote on, on something I was reading on social media. And this particular young person said this. I can't put my finger on what I've been feeling for ages, but I just don't want to do anything or go anywhere, but I don't want to be alone either. That's the only way I can describe it. I don't know what it was that I was reading, but that little comment jumped off the page for me. I can't put my finger on what I'm feeling but I don't want to do anything or go anywhere, but I don't want to be alone either. I don't think that young person is alone in feeling that. I have no motivation. I'm not sure what my purpose is. I have no direction. And at the same time, I'm frightened of being alone. I, I realized that these issues for all of us can be complex and sometimes there can be mental health issues in play here. But I want to say this, whatever that young person says, we, we in general, hear this, in general in our society, we have more money, we have better education, we have more opportunities than most human beings in history of, have ever had, and yet there seems to be this deep crisis of meaning and purpose and belonging. No one seems to know who they are or where they've come from or where they're going or even what they're for. Our society tells young people to follow their dreams and be whoever they want to be. But I'm not sure anyone really knows what that means. Perhaps the two biggest battles for you, if you're at the younger end of this spectrum, maybe these are the two battles for, for all of us, two big battles in life relate to your purpose and your purity. How can I know what to do with my life? And how can I be pure, clean, 
in my relationships, friends, there, there has to be a better story. And the teacher sums up that story here, I think, when he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. This means that if you're young, the time is now. Today, whatever older generations are doing or have done, this is your life. Used to be a program, I'm telling you that, didn't it? This is your life. You only have one. And what you choose now will affect the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, perhaps. How you choose to live, the relationships, the activities, the friendships you choose. As you plan and think, and make choices in life, do not forget that there is a God in heaven who loves you. The teacher here is not trying to make us feel guilty for being young. He's trying to help us to make the most of being young while we still can. And it is possible to live a wholesome Life that is joyful and fulfilling and useful and thankful and pure. Even if this is not you and you feel like you're already not on that path with Christ, the great good news of the gospel of Jesus makes room right here for you to stop and turn around and find forgiveness and start again. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. It is not too late to do that. This phrase here in chapter 12 verse one is not a test to pass. It's an invitation to find healing. Remember your creator while you still can. So there's the first theme. Have you got that? Remembering and rejoicing. Enjoying and remembering. That's mingled in uh, as a first major theme. Second major theme is a hard one. And I want to entitle it like this. Death is essentially the unraveling of God's good creation. This whole section here has many echoes of creation. We've seen, first of all, that the teacher... This teacher could have said, remember God in the days of your youth, but he doesn't say that. He says, remember your creator. More than that, you you may well know that in the account of creation in the book of Genesis, we're told that God formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed life into him. This man later rebels against God and brings a curse on humanity and so death entered God's good world and God said to the man I quote this is Genesis 3:19 by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return 
Just look with me at chapter 12, verse 7. I don't think, surely it's no mistake that exactly the same words are found here in Ecclesiastes. The dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. It's as if the teacher is deliberately reminding us of and taking us back to Genesis. We were created by Almighty God, the giver of life. And one day we will die and return to the dust. This is where we are all ultimately from. And this is where we're all ultimately going. So mindful of creation here in this section, the teacher seems to give a good chunk of this section to a very beautiful and poignant poem that essentially describes the decline of old age that culminates in death. Let, let's look at this poem briefly together. Just look with me at verse 1. The writer says, Remember your creator in the days of your youth, days of your youth, before the days of trouble come. So immediately makes a contrast between the days of youth and the days of trouble. And those years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Days of trouble that are hard rather than pleasurable. Difficult rather than easy. In verse 2, the writer talks about a, a, a gradual slide into darkness. The sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark. It's interesting that in verse 7 in the previous chapter, the first verse we read, there's a contrast there. Light is sweet. It pleases the eyes to see the sun. It's almost like the author said, life is good. It's good to feel the sunshine on your skin. It's good to feel happy. But in chapter 12 there in verse 2, it, it seems like the light's slowly going out. And it's more than a slide from light to darkness. There's something here about the weather as well. The last clause there in verse 2 is, is, is a bit strange. The clouds returning after the rain. You think after the rain, the clouds will be gone. But here the clouds remain after the rain. It's almost as if it's going dark because a dismal winter storm is coming. You get the imagery. It's very poetic. And then the picture strangely seems to change. And what we get is this picture of a house that is deteriorating and bracing itself for this devastating storm that's causing everything to fall apart. In verse 3, talks about the keepers of the house trembling, the strong men stooping, those who are grinding ceasing because they're few, and those looking through the windows growing to him. Some, some authors think that this is, these are metaphors for like almost parts of the body. Grounders being the teeth, windows being the eyes. But what we get is this idea of failing control, reducing mobility, 
less energetic activity, failing sight. When we get into verse 4, we see their doors being closed and a sense of quiet descending. There's both a restlessness in the waking up early and yet failing hearing as all their songs grow faint. Verse 5 seems to touch on the slowing down of old age and the hesitation and the fear and the loss of confidence it can bring. There comes a point when it's safer to stay at home than to go outside because it's too scary and feels too dangerous. Then, even the poem itself seems to start to fall apart with random references to almond trees and grasshoppers. It's almost like the poem itself starts to unravel. It's interesting this, though. I had to do some research on this. Almond trees, apparently, in ancient cultures, almond trees are said to be the first tree to blossom. So in many ancient cultures... Almond trees are a symbol of getting up early and being ready and alert and at it and keen. First, up at 5am, I'm at it. That's, that's the kind of symbol that an almond tree would, would conjure up. And yet, at the same time, when the almond tree actually blossoms, the blossom is white. And often an almond tree was said to look like an older person with a great head of white hair so in this one image what you've got is this kind of contrast between up and early and at it and yet old age here has crept up and, and obscured the alertness of youth the grasshopper too it made me smile this one the grasshopper is, is not the grasshopper like the very picture of lightness and agility, leaping around all over the place, try and catch a grasshopper. They're all over it, like Zebedee. The, the very picture of agility. And yet, what does it say here? The poor chap's dragging his legs behind him, dragging himself along. All of that energy and vitality is a distant memory. His energy's running out. And that last clause there, Desire no longer is stirred. It's, it's strange this in the NIV. In the original Hebrew, I'll read Hebrew, but you can look this up. The original Hebrew actually says here, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and the caper berry is no longer effective. The caper berry was widely regarded as an aphrodisiac, stimulating sexual desire. So the point of this last illustration is that even now, that can't work its magic anymore. In other words, the healthy appetites and desires of former years are no longer stirred. And that, that's, I think that's why the NIV trans, translates it. Desire is no longer stirred. We should, we should just pause here and note something important. Isn't this poetic description of ageing poignant? At no point 
Is this bitter? At no point is this in any way making fun of or despising old age. There's such a wonderful sensitivity and dignity and respect here. I think you can almost sense here that God loves the old. He himself is mindful of their frailty and sensitive to their vulnerability. And he knows that growing old can be very hard indeed. This passage doesn't idolise being young or poke fun at the elderly. It is just very beautifully honest, isn't it, about the reality of the decline that we experience as we get older. The point here is that the passage of time will slowly undo all of us. This description is a vivid picture of God's good creation itself, in a sense, slowly disintegrating, slowing down, declining and being dismantled. And when we get there to the end of verse 5, we're at last reminded that then people go to their eternal home. Mourners go about the streets. In verse 6, there are a couple of pairs of metaphors for death itself. The first is the image of a precious golden lamp hanging on a silver cord. And the silver cord is severed and the lamp falls to the ground and smashes. Death means that the precious light of life finally goes out. The second picture is of a well where you would draw water and there's a pulley wheel and there's a stone jar and in this image both the jar and the pulley the wheel are shattered and no one can draw the water that supports life anymore so there are two big themes here that seem to collide here in this passage as Ecclesiastes draws to a close the first is that following Christ leads to real joy. And alongside that theme, we have this other theme that death is essentially the gradual unraveling of God's good creation. Two themes. You get that? You're still with me. I told you I was wrestling with this. That those two themes seem to intermingle here. I think the obvious question has to be, what causes this sad decline that culminates in death? And I think we're pointed again back, surely, to the Garden of Eden. So here, here's my connecting thought. Two themes. Here's the connection. I've called it ingratitude in the garden. So here in Genesis, here's a perfect world created by a good and kind God. Everything that was needed, wonderfully provided. Until an evil from outside the garden 
poisoned the minds of our first parents. And they came to believe the lie that God was grumpy and not good. He had lavished his kindness on them and given them everything. And instead of being amazed and at awe and worshipping God for his goodness, they became suspicious and cynical and bitter and ungrateful. Pride kicked in. A sort of brand of it's not fair kicked in. Their desire for independence kicked in. Here's how I want to say it. The root of this, in the end, is pride. But here in the garden at the very beginning, this is a pride that prevented them from being thankful and it prevented them from trusting God. So this pride leads to no thanks to God and no confidence in God. Suddenly, for the first time, they are ungrateful and anxious. Poisoned. They so wanted to be in control. They essentially wanted to be God. But their lack of gratitude and lack of confidence killed their joy and brought the curse of death into the world. Now, doesn't this make the commands here to joy very striking? Sometimes we think of God's command as being very negative. Don't do this, don't do that. God's some kind of killjoy. Does it surprise you here that in God's word we are commanded to enjoy life? God commands us to joy. It's very interesting in the previous chapter there, in the end of verse 9, the teacher says, follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Some commentators think, well, that, that's just making sure that you don't do whatever you like. But some commentators say, no, there, there's actually something else going on here. The, the truth is that God will bring you into judgment for not enjoying the good gifts he gives. That's a slightly different way of looking at this verse. This is a joy in life that begins with gratitude towards and confidence in our creator, God. This is a call to go back and remember our creator rather than forgetting him. And here's the thing. You, you know, you, you know, we're coming up to Christmas soon. You know, if someone who loved you gave you a wonderful gift and you went, meh. <laughs> you know, 
Someone gave you a beautiful gift. They love you. They lavish their kindness on you. And you go, I don't care. It would be awful, wouldn't it? I, I, I think you'd be thrown out if you responded to a gift from someone you loved like that. But in the same way, if we are not enjoying the goodness of God, what are we saying about what we really think of him? One writer very helpfully puts it like this. It is precisely in enjoying the world God has made that we show that we have grasped the goodness of the God we say we love. So I'll say that again. It is precisely in enjoying the world God has made that we show that we have grasped the goodness of the God we say we love. Not to live gladly, joyfully, and not to drink deeply from the world of abundant goodness that God has lavished on us is a sin. And it's a sin because it's a denial of who he is. So I, I hope you can see that remembering God and enjoying life and this case of death that we've been thinking about are connected. The, the death that we experience is in an ultimate sense the result of us trying to be God. It's very striking that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says that the wages of sin is what? Death. Death is the result of ingratitude towards God, ultimately, in an ultimate sense, in the beginning. As a side note, I, I can say this as a man, grumpiness and feeling sorry for ourselves is a big issue for us guys. And it comes from me thinking that I'm somehow a little king in my world, in my house, and that everyone else is there to serve my needs. And if things are not just right, I tend to sulk. Brothers, men here today, let's work on being grateful rather than grumpy. Let's work hard to be smiling rather than sulking. All the women in the room said, Amen. <laughs> Let me very quickly give you three, three closing observations to take away. And then we're done. Number one, you can see it there on the program. Christ is not grumpy. Oh, I wish we had more time to talk about this. I, I want to tell you that this is a truth that has sustained me in my own Christian life. When I've been sad or hurting or in difficulties, it is a source of tremendous encouragement to know 
that Jesus is supremely happy. You, some of you know that I work, um, well, that's a bold claim, isn't it? <laughs> some of you know that I have another job as well as being a pastor. And we have a, we've had a saying over the, over the years in, in my work, and the saying is this, no one wants to work for a grumpy boss. How true is that? Those of you who've worked, you know that. The kind of leaders who inspire us are not the miserable ones, but the happy ones. And friends, this is supremely true of Jesus. He is not bitter or cynical or suspicious or fed up. I want to just take you to some scripture references here. We'll show them on the screen just very quickly with very little comment. First of all, the scripture refers to Jesus as the happiest of all human beings. Psalm 45, verse 7. It's quoted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. The psalmist says, You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions. How? By anointing you with the oil of joy. In some translations, it talks about the oil of gladness. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds happy, doesn't it? God, your Father, has elevated you by anointing you with joy. I love the way, too, that the Scriptures powerfully describe Christ in terms of his joyful, willing obedience. Here's another verse, Hebrews chapter 10. These are the words of Christ. Here I am. I've come to do your will. Does that sound grumpy to you? You could read that verse and skip over it. That verse has energy and joy and willingness. Here I am. Alert and keen and ready, full of gladness. And friends, do you know, even in the agony of going to the cross for our salvation, Jesus was sustained by what? His joy. In the book of Hebrews, we're commanded, commanded to fix our eyes on Jesus. Who? For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down. Can I say, with a smile on his face, at the right hand? That's not in the Bible, don't quote me on that. But you know what I mean. Jesus is supremely happy in himself and he is supremely happy in his work, costly work of saving sinners like you and me. This miserable, sin-soaked world is not in the hands of a tyrant and it is not controlled by random chance. Friends, remember this. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is full of joy. 
Let the glorious happiness of Jesus be a great encouragement to you in your life. Secondly, Christ conquered death. We need this after such a miserable passage, don't we? The gradual unravelling of creation that we've seen poetically described in the approach and decline of old age is not the end of the story. Jesus died bearing our sins and rose again. He faced death and made sure that it is no longer a cul-de-sac but a passageway into glory. Jesus has reversed the effects of this decline in order to bring us everlasting joy. As a team of elders in our church, we read the Bible together week by week. On a Monday morning, we have our staff team meeting, and the first thing we do, we take it in turns to lead, and the first thing we do is get into the Bible. We've recently been reading... Well, we read 1 Corinthians first. We're in 2 Corinthians now. But I do love, we were all encouraged by the passage in the New Testament where Paul speaks about death and the resurrection. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 4 and into chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And then he spe speaks of the body. And he talks about our frail bodies being like a tent. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... We have a building from God, an eternal house, not a tent, in heaven. Not built by human hands. And while we're in this tent, we groan. We groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Yesterday, I visited my dad. Many of you know that he is physically falling apart. His tent is ripped and flapping about in the wind. And we talked about this passage. And as he heard of the permanent, glorious, indestructible house that he'll move into sometime soon, I said to him, what a hope. And he said, it sure is. Don't we need that? The outside is wasting away, but the inside is being renewed. And to finish that verse we mentioned earlier, I shouldn't leave it on a bad note, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So as you face reality in this broken world, let the hope of eternal life too be an encouragement to you. Lastly, and then we're done. Number three, I want to say this because I think this comes straight out of this passage. Your now will shape your then. The way we live our lives now will shape our later years. This week I've been really helped on this by one of the little commentaries we've been using. It's by a guy called David Gibson. And he he points to another pastor called James Miller, who lived in the late 1800s. And he, as a pastor, he wrote a book of essays for the young people in his church. And Miller, in one of these essays, urges the young to realize that if, if your life was a house, you are basically building now the very place that you'll live in when you're old. You get that? And Miller writes, the important practical question is, how can we so live now that our old age, when it comes, should be beautiful and happy? There'll come a day when it'll be too late to think about that, but that, that day hasn't come yet. And Miller says, consciously or unconsciously, we are every day helping to settle the question whether our old age shall be sweet, peaceful, or bitter and wretched. It is worth our while to think a little how to make sure of a happy old age. We, we were speaking earlier of that young person online and their comment on social media and the battle for purpose and purity. 140 years ago, Miller encouraged the young people of his day to make sure of two things. Number one, live a useful life. Do not give in to drifting along in a self-centered bubble. Love people. If you want friends, be friendly. Serve others. Live a useful life. And secondly, Miller says, that, that's purpose. Secondly, Miller says, live a pure life. Miller argues that the best way to endure old age is with a clean conscience. And he says this, sinful years put thorns on the pillow on which the head of old age rests. Lives of passion and evil store away bitter fountains from which the old man has to drink. Nothing brings such pure peace and quiet joy as a well-lived past. Miller closes by taking us back to our main theme that life is richest when we follow Christ. And he says this, summing up all in one, only Christ can make any life, young or old, truly beautiful or truly happy. Only he can cure the heart's restless fever and give quietness and calmness. Only Christ 
can purify that sinful fountain within us, our corrupt nature, and make us holy. To have a peaceful and blessed ending to life, we must live it with Christ. And such a life grows brighter even to its close. The more earth's joys fail, the nearer and more satisfying do the comforts become. And for such a life, death has no terrors. He compares death, or the end of life, like a ship coming into a safe harbour. You, you get the picture, stormy life, and the ship comes home and lands safe. And Miller City closes by saying this, the tokens of approaching death are but the land birds lighting on the sails, telling the weary sailor that he's nearing the haven. And the end is but the touching of the weather-beaten keel on the shore of glory. Your now will shape your then. So whatever you do, whatever you do, be joyful in remembering your creator in the days of your youth. Amen. Oh, thank you. Someone's awake. Let's pray, shall we? And our musicians are going to come up and um, we'll sing. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. Sometimes we do find it hard. This has been a challenging book for us to look at together but we thank you for the rich truth that there is here we pray that you would help us not to be proud or ungrateful we pray that you would turn our hearts to Christ, your son, who you've given to us for our salvation. Help us to help us to chase him, to trust him, to embrace him. And even in our difficulties, we know that life can be hard. But we thank you for the joy and the peace that comes to those who are trusting Christ. Lord, may there be no one here who misses the Lord Jesus. Help us to be joined, as Ben was saying, joined to Jesus. We pray in his powerful and good and joyful name.